Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA, which is back, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> after sort of enforced hiatus due to me um, being too busy during the daytime and time zones and all that to sort of stuff. To be fair, everyone's been busy, haven't they? I know. So, we've yeah, all, yeah you know, but it was my I, I days think, were blocked out. They never normally are. But it's, but oh, now I, it's I, really I kinda, all your fault, obviously. It is all I mean, my fault, a, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was, I take, I was taking like, the book. Bullet there, Jim. I was happy to take the bullet. Oh, no, no, but I, I wasn't happy for you taking the bullet. Oh, that's very um, sweet. I, I feel it's like we've all been kind of posted to different theatres and then come back again. <laughs> we're now reunited in, we're now we're reunited really in Southeast Asia. <laughs> I, I feel like I've been in Guadalcanal or something. I mean, I'm way out there. It's been crazy. So, um, uh, well, there's lots to talk about. The, 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 the well, Philippines. We've been having a bit of, yes, the Philippines. Yeah. La- last time we chatted, um, we were talking about Cebu and Eichelberger and his really very, very effective campaign, but kind of slightly pointless campaign. Yeah. And you know, the interesting thing about that too, at the MacArthur level, he never got authorization from the Joint Chiefs in Washington. He just went ahead and did this, this a pretty major campaign uh, that absorbs significant naval resources too, you know, obviously because there's so many amphibious invasions, I think there are at least 38 uh, and so MacArthur just kind of does that on his own. It's it's just another example of MacArthur kind of oper- you know, it's like like he's an independent contractor or something, um, w- without uh, much in the way of a chain of command. At least when he when he doesn't want to recognize it, because if if the folks in Washington had had their say, I don't think that campaign ever would have happened. They'd have just said, no, it's not worth it. It's a, a waste of resources and time. Yeah, but as it is, I mean, certainly at the Eichelberger level, it's brilliant. I mean, it's absolutely brilliant. The the implementation of these invasions, just the constantly keeping the Japanese off guard, the coordination of logistics. We love to talk about logistics. This is just like the classic example of being lean in a smart way. Um, you know, because ordinarily he'd have like 30 days of of uh, supplies on hand as a reserve. You, you would do that in a typical invasion or campaign. Uh, he cuts it down to about 15 in order to get leaner and more nimble so that he can constantly react and move around and and uh, invade wherever he wants. Uh, and he can do that because he has the mobility of the shipping and uh, his staff is, is just really good uh, to, to be able to coordinate all of this. And he has such a solid relationship with his division commanders that, you know, it all just works really well. It's incredible. You, you say that uh, MacArthur, MacArthur doesn't have permission from the Chiefs of Staff. Is Eichelberger just running that his way, or is he running that past MacArthur? Is he just being allowed to crack on? That's, you know, to MacArthur's credit, Eichelberger is just being allowed to do it his way. And MacArthur gives him a job and says, go do it. And then he really has no reason to, to get in there and intercede and mess with him at all because it's going so well. In fact, MacArthur was absolutely thrilled with how it was going yeah. uh, because – it was the one time when, when MacArthur maybe actually undersold a campaign because, um, you know, the, the losses weren't that high, relatively speaking. Yeah. Uh, the results were quite dramatic. They liberated about 7 million Filipinos on, you know, dizzying array of islands. Um, it, it works. They work pretty closely with guerrilla units, which is a major reason for the success, too. The Filipinos are, you know, the, the ultimate determinant, really, um, especially like on a huge island like Mindanao which that, that could have been a, an enormous campaign similar to Luzon. And instead, it's this really kind of interesting sort of dance and maneuver, uh, kind of hit them along the main road type of battle uh, in which you do see urban combat at Davos City, but not quite like on the scale of Manila, which was a monumental tragedy. And, there, and the, there's two reasons why I think why Mindanao works out as well as it does. I mean, Eichelberger's excellence in sort of coordinating the, these operations, but also the guerrilla units that he's got with him, especially under a guy named Wendell Ferdig, who had who has, I think, something in order of about 30,000 guerrillas um, sort of nominally under his command by that point. Wow. Yeah, that's a hell of a lot, isn't it? It's wow. kind of amazing, really. It's a, it's like a core level 
organization. So he is in, in effect, a core commander in a way. And, and the army kind of thinks of him that way. And it thinks of other um, sort of Americans who are working with guerrillas that almost gives them sort of division status in, in, in other places in the Philippines. In the case of Ferdig, he was, I think, a mining engineer, uh, a civilian who comes back into the military orbit, you know, during the 41-42 campaign and is this kind of, you know, independent guerrilla commander. On, on this huge you island. know what it's it's it, it this is giving me a thought because it's 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 really interesting because it was uh, we'd had that conversation about the um operations on borneo and using the um um was it called the cement operation i think it was where they're using but um indigenous people to kind of help and they they also they're headhunters and they kind of support the support the um the, the Duke forces that are kind of parachuted in. You know, you think about the use of the the naggers at Imphal and Kahima and stuff like that, and you think about the use of the chins and so on in northern Burma and and the Muslim Burmese in northern Burma to to work against the uh, against the Japanese. You know, it's all incredibly effective, and I don't think anyone would deny that that's really really good harnessing of of local guerrillas and, and and ditto in the philippines and and you're just saying just now you know with with, with eichelberger's invasion and yet it's kind of the harnessing of resistance in europe seems well, to be just kind of, say, of a negative i was just and, going to why say is that? why is it they can get it so right in southeast asia and in the pacific well because we get talked it, get it so wrong in europe because we talked about the jedbras the other day jim didn't we and and yeah. and how that what you know the co- conflicts between jedbras the existing sis people the soe people that the you know that that you end up with lots of con- people with conflicting interests essentially, and then different fr- different French resistance groups of of different political stripes, and also a lot of opportunism. You know, as the Germans obviously start losing, more people come more people come forward, and that you d- you don't you don't get these the sort. I mean, the, the, you're talking about a core level operation, John. You know, the, uh, or organization that oper- operate on that scale. That's effective and helps tip the balance. There's none of there's none of that going on in Western Europe. Well, maybe the other message is is leave it to the army and not the um, not the intelligence <laughs> services. Yeah, yeah, possibly. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. I mean, the army had a lot of experience in the Philippines um, and and a decent amount of know how of local customs and peoples and whatnot. And it really is incredible in the Philippines, too, because I think you have the same fractiousness uh, in terms of the, the political future among a lot of these guerrilla groups. Um, most notably, of course, especially on Luzon, the Hooks, who are communists and are going to be a real problem in the future. So in a way, that's similar to Europe, France and Italy, where communists dominate some elements of uh, the, the resistance and are going to be a serious problem during the Cold War in a few years, um, partially because of the prestige they get from fighting against the Nazis. Uh, and it's kind of the same deal here, too. But what is holding everybody together at this point um, certainly is an anti-Japanese sentiment. And, and I think one thing maybe that's different here versus, say, uh, Algeria or something is that very clearly the Filipinos are going to get their independence. Uh, the Americans had already promised that in 1934. We're working toward it when the war broke out. This was going to happen and the transition was already going on and they had their own president already, President Osmania. You know, so they could look to that. And, but it, you know, so a lot of the, the guerrillas were sort of looking to that political future, but certainly interested in getting the Japanese out in the meantime. And the Americans represented the best hope for that. I mean, it's not dissimilar to, we, we uh, chatted with some um, some Indian uh, uh uh, researchers who are looking into oral histories of people in the INA and what 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 made them take that option and how they felt how they felt that was their best option against the British Empire and you know you, the, the truth is is everyone's making these bargains and deals and making mm-hmm. these decisions. I mean, after all, the the, the Western Allies side with the Soviet Union. I mean, that's the, the ultimate bargain there. Exactly, yeah. hardly palatable company, <laughs> but but you know it's your it's your that's your option. Isn't it? I mean, it's it's. I mean, it's fascinating. But, but there is a there's a there's a big lesson here for 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 the Nazis and for Imperial Japan, which is if you don't want to have to deal with lots of partisans and guerrillas, look after the people you're conquering better than rather than treating them like <laughs> animals. Than exploiting I mean, them. That, and, that, yeah, that's that's the takeaway them. I'm getting. I know. Oh, that's yeah. a good takeaway. Yeah, but that's that's really it because the Japanese, uh, you know, are kind of hurt by their own behavior on some levels. Uh, I I will say. I mean, I'm not necessarily going to speak up for American imperialism in the Philippines pre-war. Um, that needed to go away. 
But I will say this, given that situation, there's a, there is a sort of remarkable pro-American attitude among at least the majority of the population. Now, to be sure, there's some Filipinos who see, like just like the INA, see, okay, this is the way I can strike back at the American imperialists. I'll, I'll ally with the Japanese and, and all that. You have some of these guys, but boy, they, they really choose wrong. And, and <laughs> they're going to be reviled in many quarters of Filipino society during and after the war. Um, but but I, do, I do think that's really amazing because there had been this kind of ambiguous friendship or ambivalent friendship is a better way to put it, especially on Luzon. And, and I think the Japanese were really confounded by that. And I don't know if we talked about that, guys. But that that is what really struck me as much as anything. That I mean, I should have known more about, but didn't. Um, is the Japanese viewpoint coming into the war of like the average soldier who truly many of them viewed this as a war of liberation that Japan was fighting to eliminate white colonialism in Asia and the Pacific, and uh, nowhere more than the Philippines. And yet, you know, so you go off really idealistic, you leave Tokyo or wherever, and like, I am going to be an Asian liberator, and the people are with me, and and you get there, and they're not, and they don't care about that, and they don't want you there, and they're kind of pro-American, and, and over time, you grow to hate and resent them and dehumanize them, and this is certainly an element in why atrocities happen, and it's just so eerily, strikingly similar to a lot of American idealism, maybe even a generation later, going to Vietnam to help people against communism and all, and boy, they're going to really treat me as a liberator like my dad was in Europe or whatever. And then you get there and it's like, they don't care. They don't want you there. And then the ha- anger and the hatred, the dehumanization, not that that's what all American soldiers in Vietnam do, but it happens. Yeah. So it's similar to the Japanese in the Philippines too. Yeah. A yeah. Real cautionary I, tale. I mean, it is, it, I mean, it is, it, it, it is interesting, isn't it? Because because the, the sort of pan-Asianism that J- the Japanese sort of believe in is also ne- nevertheless has a has a very strict r- racial hierarchy in it as well. So it's it's this idea that a- Asia is their backyard and they're in charge of it, but but these people are inferior and those people. Are, I mean, it, it, yeah. And if you want to go around bayoneting people and chopping off heads, that's absolutely fine. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's absolutely bizarre. I mean, yeah, but it's not just in China, is it? I mean, it's, 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 it's not just in everywhere. China, but it's peculiar it's, it's everywhere how, they go. I mean, it's pe- the, the peculiar the echo of 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 where Nazism ends up. You know, that that this idea that this is your backyard, so you can behave any way you want in it. Um, yet also, the Nazis do think they're liberating the Soviet Union from Bolshevism and Judeo-Bolshevism, or whatever. You know, so they're, they're, it's whilst at the same time burning villages and shooting, lining people right. up and shooting, especially them. in Ukraine where initially many people want them there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the parallels... Oh, boy, this isn't good either. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I mean, the parallels are are really striking, aren't they? And and yet peculiar because they spring from completely different cultures, completely different traditions and everything. It's it's, it's a a remarkable coincidence, isn't it? It is. Well, and you know, and I, I, I found this diary by a Japanese officer, a very idealistic young guy, early 20s, um, happy to serve Japan and eager to get to the Philippines and can't wait to to help liberate people there and keep these terrible American imperialists out and all this. And you see over the course of many months in 44 and 45, um, his, his attitudes hardening, how he's changing. This was an idealistic young person who probably wanted to do good. Um, and yet by the end of the diary, uh, he he basically is advocating killing every single Filipino. Doesn't that sort of stand, you know, I mean, that really, that kicked me in the gut in a way, because I, I thought in the initial part of the diary, I thought, you know, this guy, you know, seems like a pretty good guy or whatever. And then at the end, you just read those words when he's like, they should be eliminated to the last man or something. It's like, whoa. And so then you can kind of see why these atrocities happen in Manila during the Battle of Manila, most infamously, you know, in February, March, 1945, in which 100,000 people lose their lives, um, not all to the atrocities, but a lot of them. I think there's something very real about that, because I, I don't know how many guys went over to the Eastern Front wanting to perpetrate atrocities, too, and say, hey, you know, I want to be an executor, you know, I, I want to kill Jews or something, but and yet it happens. So why? Why do people get in that mindset? That's yeah. what's troubling. Yeah, yeah Absolutely. And it's not confined to um, totalitarian cultures either. It's a it's a thing that can happen anywhere. To, and, uh, absolutely, and a brutalizing process of war as well is is, is part of it, isn't it? Um, Definitely. Um, so so Eichelberger, it, it's a fascinating idea that he's fighting a campaign that's not sanctioned by anyone but MacArthur. 
it's hugely successful. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, is this why it's sort of kind of been memory hold that it's not the first thing mm-hmm. people necessarily know about? Is that, and also because, I mean, it's again, it's one of these things he fights well, he fights light. He's agile. He gets it done. There's no epic slugfest like in Manila that obviously draws the eye. Do you see what I mean? The fact yeah. that he, the fact he's so competent sort of like writes him out of history in a way. Same principle as Operation Strike. You know yeah. this, uh, which um, this is a battle that Alan and I talked about a, a, a month or so ago. And this was General Tuca's battle plan for the for the last assault in Tunis, in Tunisia, and the Majorda ba- in the Majorda Valley. Uh, and basically, it's the only battle that I've ever looked at that the British fought, which went entirely according to plan and was all over in about six hours because it was just so brilliantly planned and executed that that it just worked completely. And so, therefore, it's it's completely forgotten about because, you know, as we all know, battles have got to, you know, they've got to have their, their it's got to be a roller coaster and, you know, things have got to go wrong and awry and you've got to sort of pull the pull victory out of the jaws of defeat and all that kind of stuff. Then you get remembered. I guess, that, you know, th- there is always a sneaking suspicion, I think, with particularly with the Allies, that if a battle is won too easily, then it can't have been very tough. And so, therefore, you've had it easy. And actually, it, it's... Very often that's not the case. It's just that when you, when you get it, when you when the prep is right and, and when you enact it correctly and all the troops involved know what they're doing, it genuinely is a little bit easier because you're fighting much more effectively. Yeah, I mean, there isn't that sort of conflict, or for lack of a better way to put it, that a, that a movie maker would want or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah, or the, right. <laughs> the big bad wolf you have to overcome or something. Yeah, I mean, yeah, 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 yeah exactly. A, That's sort of my this point. This is a campaign that, that liberates something in the, order, in the order of about two-thirds of this very complex archipelago, complex geographically and yep. culturally yeah. and whatever, at the loss of 2,000 American lives, 7,000 wounded, um, and probably about twice that number of guerrillas and who knows how many Japanese, obviously. Yep. Um, and the liberation, as I said, of about 7 million people. Um, wow. Incredible. And yet it's, it, you know, so I, I compare it in, in, uh, in, in my book, To the End of the Earth, I compare it to the, uh, the, the Brittany campaign or Colmar pocket in, in sort of like the anticlimax. And, and, but I think it's much better done <laughs> than, than those two. And, and, and in fairness, you had a lot more advantages than, than the attackers have in, in, uh, both of those campaigns, I think. But, uh, um, but yeah, I mean, and that, and that's the ultimate, but, but sort what of is it that he gets, what, what, what is it that, that he gets so he, right? He has, he has the initiative in terms of communications. He controls the air and the sea largely, not entirely, but largely. Um, he has superbly trained, you know, for amphibious operations, infantry divisions, uh, like the Americal, for instance, he's yep. got the 41st division, which is God, just the Americal. I mean, that's amazing because you sort of remember them back in 1942. Exactly. So th- they've been in the war all through this and, and it's, it's really a good unit. So is the 41st. Uh, he's got the 40th, which has an excellent commander in, in rap brush. Um, he, he's got about four and a half, five divisions of really good combat soldiers and then he's got engineer special brigades and and all this other kind of stuff that you're you're going to need because mm. um, you know obviously the the, the infrastructure is not real good and and he and uh, he's got the communications and the mobility to go and control a lot of this and that's the other thing um you know if you're in the colmar pocket and you're the overall commander it's kind of hard to get around in some ways in, in those snowy roads and and back mm-hmm. and forth on both sides of the pincers and all that in this case eichelberger has a b17 and he has all these other conveyances ships and planes at his disposal to get here there and everywhere within a six to eight hour period he can be visiting most of his commanders wherever they are on these yep. various islands and having a hand in this kind of thing plus then he can be back at his uh, headquarters <laughs> you know by nightfall and, and so yep. he's dealing with the administrative side and the operational side. Uh, so I, I think it benefits there. And the, the irony that I was alluding to is that this is a guy, as great as he is, his real sort of weakness as a, as a person is the sensitivity, oversensitivity, and this sort of lusting for, for military uh, glory and, and, uh, and, you know, being remembered forever for all this kind of stuff. And yet yeah. nobody remembers him. Um, you know, and at the time, MacArthur and the staff are lauding and they're like, oh, my God, Bob, this is incredible what you're doing. Uh, MacArthur tells him, you run an army exactly the way I would run it. Um, I'm just so thrilled with what you're doing. And he's like, yes, I'm going to be a four star. I am going to be so famous, like my classmate and very good friend, George Patton. Yeah, everybody's going to know me in America. This is going to be so cool. And then 
nope, nope. Um, no promotion <laughs> to, to four star. Um, not much publicity because Eichelberg was really good with the media. Mm. Um, and, and so he resents this, of course. And because the same thing had happened, same pattern throughout the whole war from Boona onward. He does all this great stuff. And then MacArthur doesn't really let him shine. And so, and what what happens to Eichelberger in the end? So Eichelberger, actually, the one thing he does get, I'll say, is that he was going to get the lead role in what would have been the invasion of Japan. Um, Kruger's Sixth Army was going to invade at Kyushu in Operation Olympic. Uh, yeah. But that was the stepping stone to the main island of Honshu. Uh, so Eichelberger's Eighth Army was going to be um, invading near Tokyo in Operation Cornet in March 46. And that would have been the, the key effort. Uh, First Army would have been there too, by the way. Courtney Hodges and them deployed, redeployed from Europe, if you can imagine yeah. that. And 10th Army in reserve. So uh, Eichelberger would have had that, but obviously it doesn't happen. So instead, he's part of the occupation of Japan. So the other thing that he does that I think is kind of overlooked, um, I think we all agree MacArthur's kind of shining moment is the occupation of Japan and the transformation of the yeah. country and all that. It's yeah. really Eichelberger who helps him implement that because eighth army is the main occupying military yeah, force. Yeah, yeah. So he does that for three years. Um, and then finally, you know, decides to retire, comes home. I think whatever it was 1948 and 49 and uh, transitions out of the army in about six months. And uh, fortunately for him, he was pretty well off financially. Uh, his wife had inherited a lot of money. She came from a pretty much an upper middle class background. And Eichelberger obviously had earned a significant pension and all this. So he could just pretty much do whatever he wanted the rest of his life. They, uh, they moved to Asheville, North Carolina. Um, and he played a lot of golf. He, uh, he went around and gave talks and traveled and and uh but but then he had all this time to sit there and ruminate on his career and and yeah, to, yeah. to develop and nurse these resentments uh you know and so famously he, he uh you know has these dictations to to this uh he has a he has a secretary who just just absolutely loved him um called him general bob and everything and they would just sit down and <laughs> Michael Berger would just sort of say, yeah, you know, I remember X, Y, Z and uh, talking about all these campaigns he had run and all these people he had known. And, and, you know, and I've been through that pretty extensively. I'd say about 70% of it, at least, is positive stuff about various people, people he really looked up to, like Eisenhower, for instance. But there's that other 30% where he's just ripping Sutherland, a new one, or Kruger, <laughs> especially Kruger. I mean, he just came to detest Kruger and and, uh, and and MacArthur. He resented, not really hated, but he resented him. And so you, you see that shine out. But there's a, there's an honesty in that, isn't there? I mean, he so he it's got- just him shooting the breeze, is it, to his secretary? And and she's just she's just, so there's no diary or anything like that. There, well, there was a diary during World War II, uh, but it's kind of limited. But the better record of him is all his letters he wrote to. Emma, um, which are incredible. All those are preserved and, and it's just really amazing stuff. So there's that. And then there's his, uh, memoir, our jungle road hmm. to Tokyo, which is really good. It's, uh, huh. it, it actually, it reminds me of Eisenhower's crusade in Europe in that right. it's, it, here's a general who could really write Eisenhower. Very interestingly, never had a ghostwriter for that book cause he didn't need it. Um, no. Eichelberger had a ghostwriter named Milton McKay for his book, and but he didn't really need him. And actually, yeah. Milton McKay, according to Eichelberger, uh, had a bit of a drinking problem. And and uh, so Eichelberger was <laughs> exasperated with this guy because of his drinking and his slovenly habits and all that. Right. So really, I think Eichelberger actually wrote most of the book, and this other guy was a bit ancillary in, in that <laughs> respect. John, if anyone wants to roll up their sleeves and go and kind of investigate Eichelberger, you know, where, where, where are all his papers? The, the bulk of them are at uh, uh, Duke University in North Carolina. Um, ah. And why is that? I know it seems random. Well, Was he remember associated he, with that? But he moved there, right? He, he moved to Asheville, which is not really close to Duke, actually. It's the, uh, the opposite sides of the state. But there was a guy named Jay Luvas. Have you guys ever heard of him? He was... No. Um, he was really like a first rate battlefield historian in the, like the sixties and seventies. Uh, he, he was the kind of guy who did like staff rides at Gettysburg constantly. And, and, and uh, so he had a really great career and Jay Luvas was a Duke for a while and he befriended, he and Eichelberger became friends. And, and so they became very close. And over time, Eichelberger wanted Luvas to have the papers and to, to control them. And he was, you know, Eichelberg was thinking ahead. And so in that sort of weird mix, even though Luvas moved on from Duke, Duke University got the bulk of the papers. But I should also say there are some papers, confusingly enough, at Carlisle 
and also at uh, the MacArthur Memorial in uh, in Norfolk. Of course, MacArthur has to still be in the equation, right? So, um, so if you really want to cover the bases with Eichelberger, you really have to go to all three. But there's just the the, the amount of material at Duke is voluminous. It's huh. incredible. We need to take a quick break right now. We'll be back in a second. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA with uh, me and Jim and John. What What are the Americans, what's their reading of the Japanese at this point? How are they, you know, how are they reading the runes with what the Japanese are going to do? Like on a, on a, on an operational level, because if, um, if Eichelberger knows he can, you know, run light and rather than taking 30 days supplies, take 14, how is he, how is he confident that he knows he's going to not run into like problems with the Japanese. It, what, what, it, what, you know, aside from reading, reading Japanese ciphers and taking people prisoner and, and c interrogating them, how is he taking the temperature of the da Japanese um, in, in these battles? A place like well, first Indiana. of all, he's got air and sea, and that, that gives right. you the initiative in everything. Yeah. So obviously photo recon and, uh, and the mobility of the sea, but it, it's really uh, the force multiplier is the Philippine component, the, the guerrilla yeah. units that can give you a very good sense of the Japanese order of battle, where these yeah. guys are, the condition they're in, um, how the local population feels about them. You've got all that intel at your disposal. One of the things that, uh, you know, MacArthur's headquarters had developed really now for like almost three years since leaving the Philippines initially is um, a really good kind of intel portrait of the archipelago in a great deal because of those various guerrilla groups that were in touch with yeah. MacArthur, even when he's headquartered back in Australia. So there right. were submarines running supplies to these guys, you know, depending on right. what we're talking about. So by 1945, we've reached the climax, you know, that, that asset. And, uh, and so anytime Michael Berger is planning an op, whether it's Cebu or Mindanao or Panay or whatever it is, the guerrillas are going to give him a, a very good sense of what kind of resistance he's going to face. Um, and then, of course, they're going to be right in there with the American units doing some of the fighting. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't know how much how many more advantages you could have than that. Um, so the Japanese are just constantly off balance, and yeah. and uh, you know, it's because this is a commander who's going to take advantage of all that to the hilt. So for all you know, I mean, obviously we rip on uh, Charles Willoughby, MacArthur's sort of infamously uh, often wrong intelligence chief. Yeah. But you know, he is presiding over a really incredible, sophisticated intel network of varying levels. Um, 
And, and this is one aspect of it that's paying off of, of this kind of larger Intel office that he has cultivated in the course of the war and this organization he's built. I think Eichelberger benefits from it, you know, yeah. um, throughout that campaign. And John, all this time, I mean, the, the Japanese on the Philippines, whether they're still in the mountains in Luzon or whether they're in Cebu or wherever, they're totally cut off on that. I mean, supply yeah. lines are literally zero. Supply lines are almost nil. Um, how are they sustaining themselves? Often just plundering local stuff. And but what about ammo people. and stuff like that? I mean, how does that? Well, work? they've they you know that's the one thing they they've got a decent amount of ammo because they've stockpiled over the course of a couple of years. Uh, once hmm. they get serious, well, well, let's say within okay, if you know we're talking, say the invasion of Lady in October of forty four. Okay, well, there's been about a nine month period heading up to that, maybe six to nine right. months, in which they've really started to stockpile ammo at various spots. And so by the time we're fighting in nineteen forty five, they still got a lot of ammo there. That isn't the big problem for them. It's it's food and medicine. It's those yeah. other various and sundries that they so eat. so. I mean, one of the things that's amazing is, isn't it, is by the end of the Normandy campaign, one in four battle casualties um, wounded in the American armies are being put back into the field again. By 1940 standards, that, that's a phenomenally good success rate. And that really just underlines just how much medical science has transformed during the Second World War. I mean, yeah, Craig, that's something to talk about at some point. But for the Japanese, you know, you're in the jungle, you get wounded. Good the luck. chances of sepsis, you know, <laughs> gangrene, all this kind of stuff. I mean, it's just a horror story, isn't it? It is. They're in, they're in terrible shape. I mean, you know, the Americans fighting in the hills of Luzon or Mindanao, where it happens to be, I mean, that's an awful circumstance. It really is. And the casualties are terrible. The so-called non-battle casualties, the right. 6th Army suffers 93,400 of them. I mean, that's staggering. But yeah, the Japanese, it? it's no no comparison compared to what the Japanese are facing. By by this point in 1945, say by May, June or whatever, um, if you're a Japanese soldier, the greater peril to your life by now is starvation or disease and not American firepower. Right. We are expending, right. in a typical infantry regiment, we're expending about 300 pounds of ordnance for every casualty we're inflicting on the Japanese. Um, I mean, just think about that a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so That's really, huge, what's killing it? them is all the privation. Ironic too, because this is what happened to the Phil American Army in 1942. Of course, that they, they're really not defeated tactically; they're defeated logistically. You know, they're starving, sure. and so the Japanese are facing something of the same kind of situation, but on a larger scale and in more islands. And uh, so, you know, Yamashita and his guys in northern Luzon are kind of holed up there, and they're. They're very dangerous, dangerous in the way that it, like a wounded adversary is dangerous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but on the defensive, primarily. But, you know, and so you can wait and starve them out, but that takes a lot of time, too. And obviously, allied leaders want this war over with. And MacArthur yeah. will constantly promote the idea that the campaign in the Philippines is over. Well, actually, it's really never going to be over until the surrender proceedings on, uh, on aboard the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay. Yeah. Uh, because it's only after that the Yamashita surrenders. It suddenly occurs to me that it's been a while since we've last talked about the Philippines, so we should just just very briefly kind of recap people. That the Yamashita is the is the German commander. He's known as the Tiger of Malay. He's the guy who's conquered Mal Malaya and Singapore in 1942. You know, he's an incredibly cerebral um, commander. Um, he's been given the kind of thankless task of commanding all the Japanese troops in the Philippines. And MacArthur has invaded in ja early January 1945. And Luzon is the biggest, is, is the kind of main event, really, because that's where Manila is the capital, so that's the big one. But but although the lowlands, the coastal areas on the, on the on the western side and Manila have been taken, albeit at very great cost, by the kind of sort of in, in by March 1945, the battle on 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 Luzon and elsewhere in the Philippines is is ongoing, and 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 particularly on Luzon, Yamashita has retreated with his forces up into the mountains, and that's where they are, and and it's and it's an attritional kind of starve out, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. I mean, and it's still just going on day after day, week after week. By the time VJ Day happens. I mean, the, the the question I think people might ask is why are they why why the are Japanese? they not? Yeah, because <laughs> um, they're the I mean, Japanese. Because, they're never going to well, surrender, they're, right? Well, it's they're never like, going to surrender, and 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 the government's very much in the mind that the idea is that you make it as bloody for the Americans as possible, so you can avoid unconditional surrender, so you can actually dictate terms. That the more the more pain you can inflict on the Americans, um, uh, that will deliver that will deliver a better peace for you. So they know that. So the Although obviously the average soldier, and what what would you 
What's a Japanese? What's the Japanese equivalent of doughboy? What do we What do we call them? I don't think there's a term that I know of, at least. I guess in my ignorance of the a Japanese Tommy language. or a Lancer or what? What, what whatever would, you be it would be. Anyway, I mean, he's not he's not thinking in those terms. He's not thinking we need to make this as bloody as possible for the Allies. He's thinking I'm bound on a bound to fight. Or his, or his officers are telling him that, and they've put him in an impossible situation. I mean, after all, the, we'll ne- we'll, we, we, can, we can never, ever truly echolocate someone's motivations in this, in this situation like this. But Yamashita is thinking, in a way, they've nothing to lose. They've lost. It's, the, it's, it's a very strange situation, isn't it? Well, when, when, when Yamashita leaves his wife for the last time and, and to take up his post in the Philippines, he knows that's it forever. He, you know, he basically yeah. says as much, doesn't he? It's mm. very poignant. He, he basically tells her, you're never going to see me again. And, and what he meant it, I think, at, the, at that moment was he would die in combat. Of course, as yeah. it turns out, he's tried for the atrocities in Manila and all that and, and executed mm. in 1946. And that's controversial to this day, of course. Yeah. But he, he's right. And, and I think in that sense, you know, he's a microcosm for many other Japanese um, who, who go not just to the Philippines, but all over and never it's come back. It's such a tragedy, isn't it? Oh, it's horrible. It's so horrifying, and I and that that's one of the things that's really stood out to me, you know, in, in doing this trilogy about the army in the Pacific, because I really have the Japanese point of view too, as much as possible. And what stands out to you is how similar the average Japanese soldier and the average American soldier, the average Australian mm-hmm. soldier, all really were. Um, they were just young guys who just kind of wanted to survive, and you have this idea, Japanese fanaticism and all that, and yes, yeah. there is that. Um, and, but most of these guys wanted to live, you know, they were young guys and they were hoping that there'd be some kind of future, but you can see there isn't. And yet they're also kind of dedicated. They're like, okay, this is going to be in for me, for my physical body, but I'll live on in spirit. Uh, or some of them will very poignantly say, you know, my, my ashes will be here in the Philippines and, and, you know, they'll, they'll still live for Japan though, somehow. And, and, it's um, and you know, and these terrible sort of wrenching letters to their families. Yeah, you know, this is it for me. You'll never see me again, but I'll always be there with you. And I think all of us can really relate to that. It's mm. like it's the same way I think an American would would look at it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and saying you know, I'll always be with you somehow. You know, so all believed in spirituality on some level, I guess, and just interpret it differently, different religions or whatever. You know, so the humanity of it. I mean, I mean, you know, Britain and, and the United States, in terms of kind of killed in action bill at the end of the war, I mean, got off very lightly in the big scheme of things. You know, we're still, you know, we're, we're in this country, that I, st- I think we still feel the long arm of trauma from the First World War. You know, that whole generation, you know, the, you know, the Britain that, that emerged in 1918 was never the same again. I mean, it, 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 it you know, the lights had gone out, all that kind of stuff. I mean, it must have been the same for Japan. I mean, you know, the the trauma of defeat, that whole generation, I mean, that generation must have just been completely wiped out in, 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 in a way that's worse than the British experience in the Western Front. Well, and the trauma of defeat in which one of your armies has been beaten by Indian soldiers who you thought were racially inferior for, you know, in, in Burma. And again, it's the echo of Germany. It's an imperial defeat but in the name of in the name of racial superiority in general, and you've lost, and and so so you're not so you're not racially superior by your own logic. You're not. How can you be if you've lost? And I think that society a society having to digest that, rethink, um, uh, be occupied, or, or you know, the, all the all the all those bow waves of things ru- running through Japanese society. I mean, and the, and also the, the atom bomb attacks. Which, it, which interestingly stick out culturally in a way that the firebombing of Tokyo d- doesn't have the same resonance. And, uh, and, you know, obviously Oppenheimer being in the cinemas at the moment, the, the, some of these questions are pinging around. And, and Jim and I, Jim and I uh, this week talked about the Hamburg, you know, uh, firebombing because it's the anniversary sort of right now. Of of ten ten days of bombing and the res- the the result of that, but also the in- the results are one thing. It's the intentions also uh, behind what bomber command. You know, they they got they got the perfect storm they were aiming at. They, 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 there's none of that's an accident. What happened? And, so, and yet, if you're on the receiving end of all that, 
you, and you lose. What, what on earth do you do with it culturally? I mean, it's one thing watching I this country. Know. One thing watching this country drive itself crazy about winning the Second World War. <laughs> You know, or, 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 or Russia, you know, driving itself mad about winning the Second World War, you know, anyway. But do you know what I mean? I mean, it's it's a part of the war that I just, or, or part of the legacy of the war that I don't know much about. I, I don't know how Japan views it. I don't know how that, that trauma goes on. I was reading something the other day, actually, it was actually by Neil Oliver, the historian Neil Oliver, archaeologist Neil Oliver. And, he, and I'll try and think of the, come up with the line, but I mean, it, it was an amazing line saying it was basically, you know, the trauma, he was talking about the First World War, and he was saying, the consequences of the First World War are still being felt to this day. It was his in the generations that followed. Yeah, yeah, and and they're still even now. You know, over a hundred years later, that 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 those tentacles are still being felt. And I and I and it really made me think, and it made me think about the Second World War, particularly, of course. But 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 apply that to Japan. I mean, gotta be interesting to talk to some Japanese historians, wouldn't it? Well, it's you know, Japan loses two and a half million dead right. in this war. And, and okay, but of a population of which is not that huge, is it? Right, exactly. So you talk, and they're about all young trauma. men. Uh, well, about half, a little more than half are military, so that's all young men. But then there's the civilian side, killed in the fire bombings, killed in the atomic bombings, okay. other bombings. I mean, that's just beyond belief. Much less er, the, the, the country had been torched. It, basically, the country is burned down and rebuilt again um, yeah. under your former bitter enemies. I mean, it's just. The, the level of trauma, I think, exists to this day, and it plays out a couple of ways. There's the, the sort of right-wing kind of revanchism of Japan was a victim. All of this stuff about atrocities is nonsense. We were in the right. And then there's the, you know, I think the, the more fair-minded. Um, yeah, Japan really took some pretty bad lumps, especially the atomic bombings. But it was best maybe that Japan did lose the war so that we could have a, a different kind of country in the long run, a republic, you know. But that, I mean, it, it reminds me of Germany in that sense, too, because how do you view it as a German? Uh, let's say you have a grandfather who fought in the mm. German army. Does that mean he was a bad guy? No. Um, but how do you look at it, say? Or, you know, and, and are you glad maybe that you lost the war or... Are you on that sort of reactionary side? Well, I'll tell you one thing. I mean, I, I remember, um, so so when I was first going over to Freiburg, I had this American girl who was who was helping me with, with translation stuff, and she was a PhD student at Freiburg University, but American. And she'd married um, um, a lovely guy called Ingo, who was German, who was also a, a, a PhD postgraduate student. And I remember, to, you know, going over there to their place for supper and, and Ingo talking about it, and he hated being German because of what they'd done. And I said, but that's ridiculous. You know, there's nothing to do with you. You were you know, like two generations beyond. And also he wasn't having any of it. Then I tell you, the other thing is, is I get little alerts for, for auction houses over in this country. And, you know, whenever it's a military one, occasionally I kind of have a little look at it and stuff. 80% of the, of the second world war stuff is, is Nazi, you know, it's swastikas, it's, it's daggers, it's, caps it's this it's that it's and this is because germans have found them in their loft and they don't want anything to do with it they just get rid of it they just want to sell it off as quickly as possible whereas obviously in this country you know for not entirely of course some stuff comes up but but for the most part people are quite proud of having their grandfather's cap badges and all the rest of it and keep and keep them and, and quite right too and and, it, and it's in the other thing that that's always coming up for sale on ebay are, are albums of german photographs of soldiers in the war and it's usually kind of them with their mates and stuff and then there's some stuff in the eastern front and then there's something in france in 1940 and all this kind of stuff then by about 1943 it all peters out as you would imagine there's not much photographs anymore but again this this is the same thing is people finding it in their attics or in their grandparents attics or their parents attics and thinking ah get get rid of this as quickly as possible this. it's not something you want to remember I mean, well, it, it's, it, I mean, it's interesting what you said a moment ago, John, because uh, the, the time I visited Tokyo, I remember we sat outside where the Imperial Palace is, and I really got the sense of earth, earthquake, firebombing, you know, disaster that in the 20, you know, within, within the 20th century, Tokyo had to rebuild itself, you know, at least, at least twice from scratch, having suffered great calamity, some of it natural disaster and some of it um, entirely unnatural. And, and, that feeling, that melancholy, was a thing I very yes. much 
I yeah. very much felt in Tokyo, but that may have been me, me um, looking for ghosts, looking, seeking, seeking that that feeling. I well, do you know what I? I found that on. I remember that in Singapore because in Singapore there is a um, there's a Japanese memorial to their dead, and it's kind of basically gone. I mean, you know, it used to be on this kind of hill and it was all kind of magnificent and all the rest of it. Now it's just surrounded by wire and kind of a telegraph mast and, you know, you literally can barely see it. And it's like, it's all forgotten. Don't want anything to do with it anymore. The paint's peeling. It's all that kind of stuff, you know. And, and there's a real sense of melancholy there. Yeah. Well, like the, the Lacam, the German cemetery in Normandy. I don't think there's any question there's a sense of melancholy there too. I at least any time I've been there. It's yeah, and it's also and it's also it's it's also depressing that everyone goes there and just goes and looks at Wittmann's grave. Oh, I know he was a rabid Nazi, <laughs> but rather than looking at all the innocent bastards who were killed, the you know, sixteen-year-old schlub who got thrown into the mix right. in Normandy, and well, it, it, it's like you said, Jim, the, the auction stuff. I mean, it, it's sort of like that, right? People want to right. visit Wittmann's grave and they want to buy Nazi daggers or whatever. I mean, I don't know. I don't really get it, but. Uh, I no, see it here in this country, too. It's the same thing. What is there in the way of commemoration in the Philippines? Oh, extensive and, and very MacArthur worshipping kind of thing. So, right. for instance, um, at the, the landing beaches in Leyte, there mm. um, are statues there in, in one of the, the places where the Americans landed that reenacts, you know, the famous MacArthur picture. Really? Wading ashore. Yeah. So there, there are statues there. And, of course, the... the, the um, um, largest huh. American cemetery from World War II overseas is in the Manila area. Right. Um, but also, the, you know, the Bataan Death March route, all this kind of yeah. stuff very well. The Filipinos remember the war very well. They have to. And, and yeah, uh, you right. know, it's, it's some, and, and th their experience, I think, is remarkably similar to what you see in Europe and elsewhere um, in the, in the post-war period of, uh, which side were you on? You know, were you a gorilla on the yeah. right side? Were you a collaborator? How are you perceived? You know, those yeah. choices you made. And, and so, you know, Ferdinand Marcos was a, uh, uh, a gorilla. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that helps his political career. Yeah. Uh, and so now his son is in power. And, and I think that perhaps he, uh, you know, represents that legacy, at least in the minds of some people, I would think. But there's also maybe, and not that I'm a great expert on Filipino politics or something, but I don't think there's any question there's an ambivalence, too, because uh, there's a great deal of anti-Americanism after the war, too, with the continued yeah. American military presence there, you know, and, and obviously you're going to have fighting that goes on in the Philippines to this day. I, yeah. I, I argue and I have that really dispute whether any central entity could really control that whole country. Yeah. Whether it's the Spanish imperialists, whether it's the yeah. American imperialists, whether it's a central government in Manila, whatever. Yeah, how can you when it's got that when it's such a big yeah. archipelago it's and, such and a when, thing it's, when it's so jungly yeah. and mountainous and you know it's a, th these places are not places that you can ever properly control, are they? All right. Yeah, and all all the diversity of uh, religious beliefs and uh, yeah, ethnicity yeah. and languages, and it's bound to be that way. But it, but it seems as if there's at least from what I understand, one unifying so force is that MacArthur is pretty well viewed and and i think you know probably that's the legacy of his obvious love for the for the people of the philippines well he always had that back didn't he right and and, and maybe that's as much as they know about him and when we've examined all his dirty yeah. laundry and we you know he exasperates us for good reason as, as my as rich frank he has this great line i don't know if you guys have heard this um he says it's important to hate macarthur for the right reasons <laughs> i think that's so funny <laughs> because well i think you can apply that to monty as well i mean yeah 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 yeah, 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 yeah. i know i thought of that yeah. too because yeah, yeah. uh but, there, but there's but like monty there's so many other sides of macarthur that i think you know we could properly sympathize with uh, on some yeah. levels too yeah. Um, and I think so the Filipinos see him as somebody who was really committed to, to their best welfare and their liberation. And in that, they're not wrong. Um, yeah, he, he was he was he had a messianic zeal about that, uh, you know, and, and I think maybe to his credit, but also it created a myopia in him in relation yeah. to the rest of the war and, and whatever else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the rest of that theater. Um, well, you know what? What well, we've we done there. We didn't get near Stillwell, did we? No, we didn't. We will though. We will at some but, point. But no, but this feels like this feels like you know jangling out the you know the the, the yeah, getting the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get, get the the brains and the muscles moving. No, I've, I've loved that. I've loved that chat. I'm 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 quite into kind of thinking about legacy at the moment. It's it's well it's, and well and also I mean the the thing the thing we talked about the other day, James, when we talked about bomber commands 
campaign in um in Europe and actually how the the British are thinking very much in terms of killing as many Germans as they possibly can in order to destroy their economy and win the war and that that's actually what they're thinking they're not de-housing is this sort of unfortunate euphemism you drop a bomb on someone's house and they're in it I mean what's going to happen to them it, yes they're de-housed some of how people want to look at the war certainly in this country, shies away from the idea that British state was incredibly ruthless in the pursuit of its aims, um, murderous, murderously ruthless in the pursuit of its aims. And that's obviously the circumstance it's fa- it found itself in. You know, what we've been talking about there is, you know, like a general like Eichelberger thinking, how can I be as r- ruthlessly efficient with this situation as I possibly can? He's not trying to play cricket with anyone. You know, he's 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 trying to win. He's trying to win smash the Japanese, end the war. And I just think sometimes, I mean, it was. I've, I've been thinking about a conversation we had the other day, Jim, ever since. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, me too. And I think there's a bit more to be said. Yeah. Yeah, because the, cause there's also, well, well, all of it, well, all of it, that, 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 you know, that even down to some of the sort of racial components, the way the, way the war was fought and how the leg, that then runs into our legacy, is I think, you know, the... Because there's a racial element to how the British and the Americans view the Japanese, the cruelty is easier to digest. You go, well, they're they're little, they're little, you know. And I don't think this, but they're little yellow men with slitty eyes and all that, and they're different to us. So of course they're cruel. Whereas Europeans like the Germans, well, I can't quite believe they do do the things they did because they're European like us. Because America's, a, you know, well, there's no Europe- racism involved, is there? That's exactly it, but but that but that's also that but that runs into the legacy of war as well. That you could yeah. yes, of course, the Japanese behave badly is what you can think if you've reviewed the war through a racist prism. But because you haven't viewed the European war through a racist prism, you can't quite believe that the Germans did the terrible things they did, which leads to this, all these seeds of doubt, which in a way leads to people wanting to buy Nazi daggers and 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 fancying. Yeah, 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 Wittmann, yeah. because yeah, yeah, yeah. Be- because you you that you you haven't painted the Germans racially in order to win the war, and and all these legacies. And we we were talking about this the other day, Jim. You know, there, there was a newspaper article a while ago, a few weeks ago, John, where someone was going on about you know, in Britain we giggle at everything, and it's it's to our detriment because we're not serious about stuff, so we don't get serious politics. Like Weimar Germany and the cabaret scene in Weimar showed how decadent Germans were, so no wonder they got crept up on by Nazism. And you think, that's Nazi propaganda. Weimar Germany being decadent is Nazi propaganda. That's a Nazi idea, and it survived a 100 years and got into our newspapers now. In the same way, I think that people not quite being able to believe Germany was as bad as it was. It's because it's a European country. And, or, yeah. or the, and, and Christian. And Christian. And all these sort of things. And, and you end up with those sort of stumbling things of how could the most cultured country in the world end up doing such terrible things, which I always think is, as arguments go, baloney um, or, or, or pointing at the wrong thing in that instance. We will, We thanks everyone for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this as much as we have. That's <laughs> as simple as that. Great. <laughs> we, will, we, will, we will see you all very soon. Thanks for listening. Bye bye. Cheerio. See ya. <laughs>